from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Baha'i Perspective is a radio program that presents interviews of people who have been influenced by the Baha'i Faith. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i Faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org. That's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G. Or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today, I'm playing a short interview with Harry Logan, a Baha'i from Jamaica that was passing through after being in Haifa, Israel, as a delegate from his country to elect the world-governing body of the Baha'is called the Universal House of Justice. I started the interview by asking Harry to describe where he grew up. Rural mountainside community in eastern St. Thomas, eastern Jamaica. Mm-hmm. It's called in the parish of St. Thomas. Uh-huh. Now you have states here, we have parishes in Jamaica. Okay. Simp- I think because of our English heritage, we have that. Mm-hmm. There are five children. I had a grand-aunt, her husband, my mother, father, and five of us kids. I was, I'm the last child. I think it was just a matter of embracing nature. We, we enjoyed life. In, in its simplicity, we had mangoes close by, vegetables, cane, whatever. You're fed by what was around, mm-hmm. you know, and, and life was just simply interesting. Did you grow up on a farm? It's a farm in a way, but it's a f- small farm. It's, uh, my father had cows and goats, and we had rabbits and guinea pigs and so on around the, and chickens around the yard. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of life mm-hmm. we lived and enjoyed immensely. And how long do you, did you live there? All of 16 years. Finished school and then moved into the city, which is the capital city of Kingston, Jamaica, and uh, furthered my education and went into the world of work. Now, was it a culture shock going from your rural growing up to Kingston? In a way, yes, because um, it was serious. I mean, I had to take care of myself. And so the responsibility of taking care of myself was in itself a shock. <laughs> I mean, I had to know how much money to use each week or else, you know, things would go bad at the end of that period. I mean, I had nobody to ask. Mother and father, sisters were no longer around me. Yeah. So to that extent, it was a shock. But, I mean, it's, it's Jamaica, and Jamaica is, in fact, a small country. So the worst happens. You go back home. <laughs> but then one never thought of that. I mean, have you been to Kingston before? Oh, yes, I've been to so King- Kingston a couple of times really before. A strange no, it was not a strange place. Yeah. But being on my own was strange. Right. Now, did you had to support yourself through the schooling that you did go through? Um, no, my parents did, but I, you had you lived on a budget then. Before that, I didn't need a budget. My parents kept that budget. Right. <laughs> so now the budget was mine. <laughs> <laughs> right. After you finished your schooling, what did you do? I went into work. I worked with the social work agency, mm-hmm. the government social work agency, in communications, doing publicity work, highlighting the work of the agency, across the, the country and so on. And that gave me a f- fantastic opportunity to become more familiar with what uh, Jamaica is. And it's, and it's even though a small island with its complexities, I mean, we speak a Creole. And it, as a result of, of that experience, I realized that there were people who spoke 
this very same Creole, but in a in a form that even ch- challenged even myself. You know, mm. so that was interesting. So you traveled all over Jamaica as part of this yes. job? Yes. Yeah. So you'd yes. seen pe- parts of Jamaica you'd never seen before? Never seen before. In fact, that particular job really took me to places i never never seen and introduced me to people in, in their natural habitat, as it were, you know. Mm-hmm. And that was very interesting. And really gave me a kind of, of, of love for the human being, you know, and respect as well. Because there are people different from the environment operating in a in a in a in a setting that was different from the one I was f- familiar with. So, how long did you do this job for? Ah, uh, pr- perhaps about three years. Why did you leave that job? Well, the government was downsizing at the time, uh, so I, w- <laughs> I lost I lost a job. I but I moved on from there into working in a in in a, in a large bookshop, and and that was again was a very very interesting experience for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what did you do at the bookshop? Um, just an, uh, worked as an assistant, yeah. you know, as mm-hmm. a, a, a sales associate, you know. Mm-hmm. And that was, again, you were exposed to to different people because, I mean, this is a time when the customer is priority, you know. You had to always keep that in, in, in the back of your mind and all, and service. So the shop and businesses in general have a very good attitude towards service to the customer. Yes, that's a, that's that's really something. That's uh, we are not always um, number one in customer service, but it, always in the back of our minds in any business is that we really must treat the customer well. And how long did you do that? Uh, for a short time, actually, for about a year. When I moved into something else that I found absolutely mind blowing. It was educational tourism, which not only took me across Jamaica, but across the region, the Caribbean region. So tell me about education tourism. What it, what it really involved was exposing youngsters in Jamaica who were pursuing tertiary level education to go to other places overseas based on the kinds of skills that they were pursuing. So a person was doing probably electronics would probably come to some of the places in the United States where electronics was at its cutting edge. And the same would take place for a youngster here or in Canada or in Europe who desired to come to Jamaica or to some of the other Caribbean islands. And that was the extent of the thing, mm-hmm. of the program. You know, it was very, very good. It was an international company? It was an international company, yes. Okay. Yeah. And you said you had traveled all over the Caribbean region. Did you did your travels extend beyond the Caribbean region? or Except for one time, yes. We, I went to Denmark. and Copenhagen was, uh, I found Copenhagen just a, a wonderful place. I never, never knew that I could ever feel at home in, with, with snow because Jamaica is a tropical country. And I had never seen snow before, but I felt at home, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. So what was your job when you were working for this company? Uh, the, uh, a couple of things. I, I moved from, I entered as a person responsible for the programs, the development programs, to being sent to Trinidad to open an office there, you know. And so I basically developed the program, the, the vibrancy of the program was developed out of out of Trinidad, where I was where I was I was I was located. So you're a program developer then? Yes, kind of. Okay. Yeah. 
how is being a program developer take you to different places throughout the um, it, because because essentially it's a, it's a marketing job uh, you know you went to the various islands and and marketed the program to mm-hmm. persons and so on okay. uh, also we were in contact with similar organizations in various countries around the world to bring young people into the Caribbean as well mm-hmm. and how long did you do this for oh I, I never really ever left that one yeah <laughs> Even when I went to work elsewhere, I was called back on assignments from time to time to do various things because it really was something that I, I enjoyed immensely. Yeah. yeah. What did you do when you started I, diversifying your I went work? into utilities regulations to do customer service in utilities regulations. Mm-hmm. And that is, did, again, for a short time, but exposed me to another aspect of life, quality of service regulation, because Jamaica was liberalizing its um, utilities. I mean, we had one telephone company, so we're bringing in another, a couple others. Water supply was being, was being provided by other organizations and so on. So now the utilities regulator had now all of those things, including transport as well. You know, so it, and there are very many organizations responsible for transportation in Jamaica. So what did you have to do when you were... Uh, we were? I was mainly concerned with an assessment of the quality of service. Mm-hmm. So ever so often, we had to do a, a variety of things to assess how the service quality was being maintained because service quality was, was decided between the utilities regulator and the specific utility groups. So did that require you going out to the customers and talking to them or what? Very rarely. Yeah. But, uh, but more my in, the interface was with the various organizations providing the utility service. Okay. You know. yeah. So that's another different level of, of contact, mm-hmm. you know, business, business persons. I did that into the year 2000, actually. Okay. Then I went, I, I left the country for a while, started to explore overseas on my own did a couple of jobs here and there in various countries but returned in 2001 to work in taxes <laughs> as like an accountant you mean tax preparation yeah, yes I, I i work with the with the inland revenue department and so i i'm currently now searching for persons who didn't file their taxes i see yeah. i see now harry at what point in your life, did you run into the Baha'i faith? It was during a mission overseas. In when I was searching overseas, I was in Dallas, Dallas, Texas. I, and why were you in Dallas, Texas? I had some friends there. Uh, I, there was a Jamaican friend of mine who was in the U.S. Marines, and I'd actually gone there to visit her. But the challenge was, I was trying to find a barber who could cut my hair. <laughs> So you went you went overseas to see <laughs> you find that barber. No, no, I I was I was with with my friend for an extended period, and I needed to ah. get a haircut. And it was during one of those trips down to downtown Dallas that I met a taxi man who said to me, um, "Have you ever heard about the Baha'i faith?" So it's just out of the blue. Out of, well, it, it started a little bit stranger than that. I actually noticed him delaying in in a parking lot waiting on me I, I, well, that's the way it looked he looked up the road he saw me and he so I asked him uh, and I, I, need a, I need a ride I don't know if in, in, my, in my walking he had seen that I wanted to go somewhere I needed his service but when I got inside the taxi he said to me did you know that I was asked to wait on you 
Of course, that I said to myself, oh, no, not another crazy person. But along the way, he said, I'm a Baha'i, and, and he started to tell me about the Baha'i faith. But the good thing is, I had already heard about the Baha'i faith in Jamaica. So tell me about that. Usually, when we were growing up as children, there was a program on 10.15 on a Thursday night on national radio in Jamaica with the Baha'i, speaking about Baha'i faith and so on. I recall vaguely attempting to listen as a child. But 10.15 was an indication that it was time now for us to go to bed as children. So when he began to speak to me about the faith, it was, it was really very easy. I listened to him. I had an opportunity to ask questions and so on. You were able to ask questions I, uh, from this gentleman when he when he spoke oh, to me. Yes, I, oh, yes, when you were yeah, back, you're back yes, in the taxi. Yeah, I'm back in the taxi. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right, right. Yeah, was you were able to listen to this radio program even though it was so late at night? Yeah. Um. As I said, I I have vague memories of okay. trying to listen to what the, the program, mm-hmm. but not really connecting to anything that was said. Um. Having met this gentleman. It was an opportunity for me to ask because I had never met anybody in Jamaica who, who, who claimed that they were Baha'i, who said they were Baha'i. So it was good to meet somebody. Not that I was exciting, but it was something that I could use up my time in between where I was going to downtown Dallas. You know? sure. So we discussed the thing, and he offered to come back for me because I displayed enough interest. He offered to come back to collect me after my haircut to take me back to the location where he'd take me from because there was a lady, he said, who I needed to see. I needed to speak with her. And so he did exactly that. And what was your reaction to him saying that to you? By then I'd become comfortable with him. And, and in fact, the things that he, he was telling me about were very interesting. Which things were they? Um, the principles. One God, because as I said earlier, I'd been to so many churches and my parents did not concern themselves about a particular denomination as long as, that, as I was being told about God. I was being taught about God. So it was good to hear that there was a religion that did not think that other religions were offensive and that there was that there was difference. Here was this gentleman telling me that the Baha'i faith considers religion as a school and all we need to do is to progress in that school. And the point at which we had reached today is the Baha'i faith. And that was interesting. That captured me. So he came back and got you. And then took me to, to meet a lady by the name of Leila Kavari in Dallas. She still is, she's still there. And she took me under her wings. That evening I went home with about four books <laughs> under my feet <laughs> because she works at the library. A couple of days later, she took me to what I now realize was a feast. And what is that? It's a gathering of Baha'is. Every 19 days, Baha'is gather together for... A social and administrative things, you know, local communities gather. I remember at some point in time, well, I remember more than anything as the welcome. Everyone welcomed me as if they had known me forever. And that to me was strange. So you hadn't experienced that in Jamaica with all the churches you had gone to? Well, we have, we've had welcome, but welcomes, welcome is different from welcome. I was being welcomed in somebody's home here where there were other people. And people were just so happy to see me. I mean, you, you, you felt, one felt a genuine, deep feeling of happiness to be there, you know. And they, they just welcomed me in. 
when at some point throughout the evening I was told that I was free to go upstairs and that was unusual because people never usually just allow you to walk around their house just you know without their being with you you know I was told that you can go upstairs the library is at the top of top of the steps play music read books enjoy yourself but I realized now that they were doing the administrative portion uh, okay. <laughs> of the feast, which obviously Baha'is are, but only Baha'is of that locality would be would be present. Why don't we explain to our listening audience why that is? Well, the, the affairs are regarding the local community, really, and so it has to do with the running of the affairs of the community and what people think and so on. So I would not necessarily be involved in that, not being a Baha'i, you know. It's not that one is, is excluded, but I'm from Jamaica. <laughs> I really had nothing to do with, with the affairs of that particular community, mm-hmm. you know. And, and, of course, I wasn't a Baha'i. So after the uh, evening was over, what happened? Baha'is seem to have a lot of food. <laughs> they piled me up with a lot of food and sent me home, you know. I continued to um, relate to, to Layla and her family, actually. And shortly after, I returned to Jamaica. In a couple of weeks, I think, I returned to Jamaica. And I simply went searching for the Baha'is because the experiences with Leila and the other members of the community was so moving, had such an impact on me that I had to seek out these people, these wonderful people. And shortly after, I had made some wonderful friends in the Baha'i community. But there's one principle in the faith that says we must pursue the independent investigation of truth. I did not immediately become a Baha'i. I really needed to know more to make myself comfortable. So it took me about another year, almost another year. The Baha'is kept coming to my home. They had deepening for delegates for their, their national elections. Why don't you explain what that is? A deepening is a preparation of delegates for what they will do when they go to their national national elections. These national elections are for what? For their national spiritual assembly. So these delegates, how are these delegates chosen? They're chosen in the various localities where there are existing Baha'is they choose from among themselves someone who are a set of persons based on the number of delegates they are allotted who will represent them at the national convention mm-hmm. and take their and, and literally take the concerns of that community to the national community so this was a deepening for such delegates yes it was how was it that you were involved with these deepenings if you were not a Baha'i? Because I wasn't really involved. I was, the request was, can we use my premises as a convenient uh, one? And utilizing it. Okay. But in between that, they were also deepening me as well about the faith. I was learning new things. I see. I remember at one point saying, I will never be able to learn everything about this faith. There's just too many things, you know. Baha'u'llah has written so much, many, many times beyond the size of the Bible, for instance. Somebody said to me, all you need to do, all you need to appreciate is that Baha'u'llah is a manifestation of God for this age. That's all. Shortly after, I declared. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
So what happened after you became a Baha'i? Oh, life changed radically. I was not really somebody involved in the church, as I said earlier. I wasn't involved in religious affairs to any great extent. I was spiritually conscious, but wasn't really involved. I had two things doing at the same time, or more. I was learning to understand the faith. I was deepening myself on the faith, but I was also being given assignments. So I had to learn fast. And and that is that's one of the things when you when you enter the, the Baha'i faith, you realize that one has a responsibility for oneself. There is no preacher. The faith doesn't have any. We don't go to a Baha'i event and somebody tells you what to think. The writings are there. You're encouraged to read them as many times as possible, but certainly in the morning and in the evenings before you go to bed. One is responsible for one's spiritual development. That's one of the important features of the faith. The reason I'm able to even have this interview with you is because you're returning from a trip to Haifa, Israel yes. as a delegate from the National Spiritual Assembly of the Baha'is of Jamaica. Jamaica yes. Could you please explain for me, first of all, what is a National Spiritual Assembly of Jamaica, and then explain to me what took place as a delegate going to Haifa, Israel, and okay. electing the international body for the okay. Baha'i. The National Spiritual Assembly of Jamaica is the national go national governing body of the Baha'is of Jamaica, and we also have responsibility for the Cayman Islands as well. And basically, we were elected by delegates from across Jamaica, Baha'i delegates from across Jamaica. By virtue of being a member of the National Spiritual Assembly, anywhere in the world, one is a delegate for the International Convention. And the Baha'i World Center is located in Haifa, Israel. And so that's we journeyed from Jamaica through the U.S. to Israel for that event, which took place at, nearing the end of, of April. Now, how is it that Haifa, Israel, ended up being the Baha'i World Center? Well, because Baha'u'llah, a, a Persian of Persian descent, was persecuted, sent from many places, from Persia across modern Turkey, and finally he was imprisoned in Acre, uh, Israel. But what is important about Haifa is that at one of the points, he, 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 he actually died uh, being a prisoner. At some point during the end of that period, his imprisonment was not as strict as it was before. And he pointed to his son, Abdul Baha, where on the mountain, the forerunner, much, much like the John the Baptist of, of the Bible, the forerunner to the Baha'i faith, to his presence, where his bones should be laid on Mount Carmel in Israel. And as a result of, of that, after many years, the Baha'i World Center was constructed there. Mm -hmm. So Harry, what plans do you have going forward in your life? To continue as best as I can to spread the message. It's an important message, a, a message of unity, unity is what we need, you know, a message of peace, a message of hope. It's unfortunate, I think, that we can't get it out faster, <laughs> but thank God for programs such as the one you have, 
more and more persons are hearing about the faith. And the fact that it, 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 is, it is such an inclusive faith. And I want to continue to be a part of that. Mm-hmm. And how about in your work? What plans do you... As I said earlier, my background in communications and marketing is something I would want to return to. I'm, I'm currently working in tax administration at this point in time. But hopefully, very soon, I will return to doing things that I like. And hopefully as well, those will also take me to a place where I can meet more people. <laughs> you know. Well, I wish you the best of luck in the future. I thank you so much. It's my pleasure. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Harry Logan, a Baha'i from Jamaica that was passing through after being in Haifa, Israel, as a delegate from his country to elect the world-governing body of the Baha'is called the Universal House of Justice. Since I have some time, I thought I would play the audio from an information video on the history of the Baha'i faith, since Harry had touched on it briefly in the interview. The story of the Baha'i faith begins in the middle of the 19th century, a time of worldwide religious expectation. A young man in Shiraz, Persia, quietly proclaimed in 1844 that he was the messenger of a revelation from God. Referring to himself as the Bab, meaning the gate, he explained that he was the predecessor of a divine teacher greater than himself who would soon appear and bring about a new age of unity and peace. In nine short years, the Bab's faith grew throughout Persia. His followers came from all classes, from the poorest to the richest in the country. Even some of those serving in the court of the king were attracted to his teachings and becoming his followers. Perceiving these progressive new ideas as a threat, religious and civil authorities killed and imprisoned thousands of followers of this new faith. In 1850, the Bob himself was executed by firing squad. In 1852 in Tehran, one of the most courageous supporters of the Bab, a Persian nobleman named Mirza Hossein Ali, was arrested, tortured, and cast into a subterranean dungeon called the Black Pit. It was because of the position he held in the nobility that he was not put to death. Later, he took the name Baha'u'llah, meaning glory of God, and his followers became known as Baha'is. The years preceding his imprisonment, Baha'u'llah had been given many opportunities to take important positions in government or society. He chose for himself, however, a life of service to the poor and needy. His reputation grew because of his deeds and his character. An example of his character is demonstrated in the story of his being led off to prison. A crowd had gathered to hurl abuse at the prisoners as they were being led to their incarceration. Among the crowd was an old woman who stepped forward and held in her hand a stone to pelt him with. Although frenzied in rage, her steps were too weak to keep pace with the procession. Give me a chance to fling my stone in his face, she pleaded with the guard. Baha'u'llah turned to them and said, 
suffer not this woman to be disappointed. Deny her not what she regards as a meritorious act in the sight of God. Baha'u'llah's imprisonment in the black pit of Tehran was intended to crush his spirit and destroy the momentum of a newborn faith. But in that dungeon, at the lowest point of his physical life, the Spirit of God spoke to Baha'u'llah's agonized soul. Like God's messengers of the past, Moses, Jesus, and Muhammad, Baha'u'llah received a revelation that was not of himself, but from a source far greater. In complete darkness, under the galling weight of massive chains amidst stench-filled air and filth, the Most Great Spirit appeared to Baha'u'llah in a vision, calling with a most wondrous, a most sweet voice. This is the beauty of God amongst you and the power of His sovereignty within you. Could ye but understand? Baha'u'llah later described the moment of revelation by saying, I felt as if something flowed from the crown of my head over my breast, even as a mighty torrent that precipitateth itself upon the earth from the summit of a lofty mountain. His quickening spirit revived me, and my tongue was unloosed to voice his call. The closing weeks of 1852, Baha'u'llah was brought out of that sewer that was used for a prison. He came before the court of the Shah in heavy chains and dressed in the rags that he wore for more than four months, and he received his sentence. He was granted life, but life in exile. He was stripped of all that he possessed. His acceptance of these dictates began a period of more than 40 years of exile and imprisonment. Baha'u'llah, along with a small group of companions and family members, was first banished to Baghdad where he spent over 10 years resolving to revive the dispirited followers of the Bab. Still grieving the execution of the Bab and the imprisonment, torture, and killing of many of his followers, this religious community was in disarray, demoralized, and confused. When he arrived in Baghdad, Baha'u'llah was able to broaden the outlook and transform the character of those who remained faithful. He cultivated the principles of non-violence, obedience to the authorities. He banned backbiting and demanded honesty and truthfulness, chastity and justice in their personal and public interactions. The members of this exiled community and the community at large under Baha'u'llah's spiritual leadership soon became famous for the integrity of their character, the purity of their motives, the nobility of their deeds, and the excellence of their conduct. It was here, outside Baghdad, in 1863, in a garden he named Rizvan, or Paradise, 
that he gathered a group of followers and publicly declared that he was the promised one of whom the Bab had foretold. I am come to you, O people, from the throne of glory and bear you an announcement from God. He said, This message from God was expected by all of the religions of the past. Every prophet hath announced the day, and every messenger hath yearned for this revelation. He said that religion is one just as the sun. Just as religions have dawned in the past, so would they rise in the future. Every one of them is the way of God, connecting this realm with the realms above. Each of them is known by a different name, is characterized by a different attribute, and fulfills a definite mission. Baha'u'llah explains that God has never left mankind alone, that in each age God has sent his prophets, that each prophet has revealed God's teachings, that all the prophets of God are inspired by the same Holy Spirit and represent the next logical stage in the spiritual development of humanity's collective experience. As Baha'u'llah's followers began to grow, Ottoman and Persian authorities sought once again to suppress his influence by exiling him further west, to Constantinople, then to Adrianople. It was during this time that Baha'u'llah sent his first challenge to the rulers of the world. O king, I was but a man like you. He challenged them to unite and fortify their alliances rather than their borders. He warned them against fundamentalism and intolerance. Religious fanaticism and hatred are a world-devouring fire a desolating affliction whose violence none can quench. The place chosen for his final banishment was Akka, a prison city located on the coast of present-day Israel. Its reputation as the harshest and most vile prison colony in the Turkish Empire was notorious. In 1868, Baha'u'llah in heavy chains and about 70 followers and family members were locked into their cells. While confined in the prison city of Akka, Baha'u'llah wrote many of his important works, explaining the laws and principles enshrined in God's latest message to humankind. For one who had spent most of his adult life in prison and exile, he revealed a profound global perspective when he wrote, It is not for him to pride himself who loveth his own country, but rather for him who loveth the whole world. The earth is but one country, and mankind its citizens. Impressed by the power and nobility of Baha'u'llah's character, authorities eventually relaxed the strict confinement of his imprisonment. At the urging of his son and the government authorities, Baha'u'llah moved with his family to a property surrounded by gardens located a short distance north of Akka called Baji. In 1891, the last year of Baha'u'llah's life, Professor Edward Granville Brown of Cambridge University, England, wrote a book 
detailing his visit to the prison city of Akka. A well-known scholar of the times, Dr. Brown describes in this book his first meeting with prisoner-in-exile, Baha'u'llah. Though I dimly suspected whether I was going and whom I was to behold, a second or two elapsed there with a throb of wonder and awe. I became definitely conscious that the room was not untenanted. In the corner, where the divan met the wall, sat a wondrous and venerable figure. The face on whom I gazed I can never forget, though cannot describe it. Those piercing eyes seemed to read one's very soul. Power and authority sat on that ample brow. No need to ask in whose presence I stood as I bowed myself before one who is the object of a devotion and love which kings might envy and emperors sigh for in vain. A mild, dignified voice bade me be seated and then continued. Praise be to God that thou hast come to see a prisoner in exile. We desire but the good of the world and the happiness of the nations, yet they deem us a stirrer up of strife and sedition, worthy of bondage and banishment, that all nations should become one in faith, and all men as brothers, that the bonds of affection and unity between the sons of men should be strengthened, differences of race be annulled. What harm is there in this? Yet so it shall be. These fruitless strifes, these ruinous wars shall pass away and the most great peace shall come. I hope you enjoyed Harry Logan's interview and the information piece on the history of the Baha'i Faith. For a copy of this and other programs, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i Faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
wilderness. Shall be glad. Prophet Isaiah goes on to say they shall see the light. Then they shall see the light. Laying down with the lamb. Together up the mountain, on the king's highway, to just to behold the glory of the Lord. Give him praise because he's magnificent. Come on, choir, take it up, all praise. 
Zion. All brothers and sisters, we'll go walking hand in hand.
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.